when the crisis happened, I really knew what, how the failure was looking like. So it actually didn't bother me as much. We cannot fail any, you know, any day, but we can't, <laughs> it can be worse. So the only thing that's going to happen from then is it's going to rise back up. We're going to come up. So whatever you do, it's going to come back up. And I don't know why my brain was that way until now. So now I look back and I realize that ah, it's because I was trained to fail before. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Today, I'm speaking with Jeep Klein, one of the amazing people I've had the privilege of meeting in my role at Backscoop. I think she's doing a lot right now and it's really hard to boil down into one quick intro, but I'll do my best. She is founding partner at Mr. Pink VC, a LATAM-focused fund. She also is an operating executive and is currently president and board of directors at Ahead Medicine, a life science company in the U.S. And before Ahead Medicine, she was also a senior executive at Intel, where she pioneered, launched, and scaled the company's first Android-based tablet device globally. Apart from that, she also founded C-Sky Lab, an organization that brings knowledge and resources from Silicon Valley to Asia for tech entrepreneurs, and is also a current faculty at UC Berkeley. Hi, Jeep. So nice to finally speak with you again. I'm glad to finally catch you after your many months of traveling. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. Thank you for having me here. I really was amazed by your story when I was introduced to you. And as I said, like looking through your LinkedIn, I'm sure a lot of people look at it and think, oh, I could never be like her or she's so impressive. But I looked into your personal story and I think there's been a lot of hard work that came into play throughout your entire career. And maybe some people can learn from your story and realize that they can do some things the way that you did to achieve what they want for themselves or be a little more like you. So. The first question I really want to ask is, you know, what's your background? I know you grew up in Thailand, but what was your childhood like and what was your family like? Honestly, I'm just a, a really typical kid, born in Bangkok, Thailand, um, and I was born and raised there. I went to a school there, not even international school. I went to a local high school. And after that, I went to college uh, called Chulalongkorn University, which is also, you know, um, a local college, not an international program today they have a lot of international programs um, but back then there were you know there were only a few so you know it's actually quite phenomenal to me to be born and pull up in in Bangkok at that point in time when I look back because the country was developing a lot it was growing quite significantly during you know the first 10 20 years of my life when I was there right before 1997, which was Asian economic crisis that was triggered by Thailand before spreading out throughout Asia, especially Southeast Asia. But I grew up in a normal childhood. I was loved. I was in a middle-class family. 
but I didn't feel that it was a middle class family. You know, now as an economist, I look back and it's like, oh, my family was not rich. But back then, I thought I had everything. You know, we had great food on the table. I had great family, good family members who loved to see me every weekend and as much as possible. It's the feeling that, you know, it's the feeling of possibility, right? They told me I could do anything I want. They told me that I should try to do a lot of different things. I got to swim. I got to do all kinds of activities as a normal kid in the country. So I would say I have a relatively normal childhood. I went to uh, a Catholic school, a convent school, um, from first grade to high school. And to me, that was one of the best decisions that was made by my parents. At that school, it was a private school. And I remember um, during those days, it was actually one of the best schools that people send the kids to. Um, high, you know, high quality education uh, with English program. It was not international, but they teach really good quality English. And um, I was a part of that before, you know, go on and do my own thing. And what was your family like? I think I I heard another podcast where you mentioned that your dad actually had a grade four education. And I was wondering, you know, what did he do when you were younger? What was his job? Or did he have his own business? And what kind of influence did he have on you? Did he put a bigger emphasis on education than other parents? Yeah. He, you know, if I ask him anything on education, he would say yes. Even if it's very expensive, sometimes you take like extra classes that you want to learn that I wanted to take from an English teacher, you know, from Britain, you know, from abroad, he would try to make that happen. He, to me, he is one of the best entrepreneurs I have, I have seen in my life. And that, you know, back then he was just, you know, he was my dad and I didn't realize that until now. I look back and he has fourth grade education. My grandparents immigrated from China. So ethnically, I'm 100% Chinese, so second generation Chinese Thai. And so for the grandparents to, you know, um, to to have uh, a family, back then it was very hard. So my dad didn't get to go to school um, and, and he built himself, taught himself almost like an engineer how to build houses and use the profit that he made to reinvest in the next project and he became a real estate developer um, doing commercial development and housing development very very successful until the asian economy crisis happened 1997 it hit my family severely um, especially you know on the financial side and i remember at that time i was in high school in last year of high school my dad was very sad and stressed, not because he didn't have money, but actually it's because he was afraid that we would be impacted mentally, right? How are we going to live in a society? How am I going to go to school? He was concerned about us. And I think that was one of the first moments in my life that being the key influencer to drive me to study economics in college because I wanted to know how to prevent those kind of economic crises to happen in the country and in the region 
And better yet, how we can build the long-term sustainability for the country because the impact that the crisis had created at the time was unequal. People who didn't have access to capital are people like my dad, right? Because he didn't go through the formal education. He couldn't come back to the formal banking system. So he had to, in order to recover, he had to borrow from friends and family members. And sometimes the interest rate, um, like, you know, um, informal interest rate uh, is more than 60%. And I'm not joking, six zero. So it kind of brings you down. It's very hard to come back up. So there were a lot of factors um, that I learned during that time. But the good news, the good news is I was already in high school. And before that, I failed before. So it was not as critical as my dad worried about. I was a swimmer, um, competitive swimmer since I was seven. And I swam for 10 years, at least three kilometers a day. <laughs> oh my goodness. And you know, <laughs> three kilometers a day. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I never won. I never got any medal. Not even a bronze medal, let alone the gold medal. I never got a medal. It's just so in hard. I spent so much. For in 10, 10 years, no medals. Years. But you still swim no medal. three kilometers a day. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wow. And so towards the year 10, I quit. <laughs> I was like, okay, I was 17, <laughs> I'm not doing this, <laughs> like, enough is enough, you know. So by the time uh, when the crisis happened, I really knew what, how the failure was looking like. So it actually didn't bother me as much. At this, it, this is how the brain worked, okay? And I was like, well, now as a family, we are at the bottom. We cannot... We cannot fail any, you know, any deeper. We can't, <laughs> it can't be worse. So the only thing that's going to happen from then is it's going to rise back up. We're going to come up. Right. Because if you hit rock bottom so, already, then there's yeah. nothing worse than that. So you can be optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So whatever you do, it's going to come back up. And I don't know why my brain was that way <laughs> until now. So now I look back and I realize that, ah, it's because I was trained to fail before. So doing sports actually helped, right? So, and, you know, I got myself into Chihuahua University through the entrance examination, you know, the Asian system, right? You have to pass the test. <laughs> it's a competitive <laughs> test. <laughs> I got in, I got to study economics that I hoped for, and I loved it. And that's kind of sent me, kind of like the spark, the catalyst that sent me to who I am. I think the story about your dad and how he influenced you is like so critical. I feel like it was in my head like a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And no, I appreciate everything. Yeah. I like how you said that you never felt like you were a middle class family because he always gave you something, like whatever you needed. Like if you had a class you wanted to attend, if you wanted to pursue some kind of extracurricular, he would. It's not that he always probably had the money, but he'd always find a way to make it work, right? That's right. Um, I, by the way, I knew that there were a lot of you know um, rich families around me who were super rich. Not that I, I thought I was the richest, but <laughs> but I felt that you know I had I had enough mm-hmm. that made me happy. You know, family, food, 
love. I got the best education from the private school that my dad invested in. Um, now I look back, that's why it was one of the best investments is the education. Not that, you know, when I asked him for silly things or toys, you know, of course he said no, it's not <laughs> necessary, right? <laughs> but for education, he hardly say no. Hmm. And what was your mom like? Was she similar to your dad? Or did she sort of have a different kind of influence from him? You know, she is really different from my dad. And I like it. So my dad is super entrepreneur. It's like type A kind of guy, right? Like, look, I come up from like zero. I built myself to be like a real estate entrepreneur. And then he came back to zero. And he has that resilience. My mom is very, very supportive in a way that I couldn't believe. So, you know, um, when I was in seventh grade, when I was 13, I remember, um, and, you know, at the same convent Catholic school, I think, I got an F. <laughs> you know, in what class? An F? <laughs> in, yeah. I got an F in English. Oh, now, yeah. people kind of laugh about it. I'm like, <laughs> now English is kind of my first language. But back then, I failed in English, right? I had I was so sad. I was so sad, you know, because I never failed before in, you know, in the school setting. I came back home, in, you know, 13 years old, the next one. I was like, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to tell my parents that I failed? And I, of course, I had to tell my, you know, my, my mom. So I told my mom first, like, I failed and I'm sorry. I'm a pride mother. Um, and my mom, typically, you would make things. You know, some parents would turn to you and be very mad that you get an F in any subject, right? Yeah. And my GPA at that point was like 2.0, <laughs> like, <laughs> like barely, hanging I barely on. make it, okay? Hanging on. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I hang on, right? And I remember my mom um, turned to me and said, why are you crying? And I was like, I just failed. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm crying. And, and she said, you know, she looked at my report, and uh, in my school, we have 13 subjects. Okay? You have science, you have math, you have English, you have, you know, arts and this and that. And my mom was like, look, Jeez, you've got an F in English, but what I see from your report card is that you got an A in science, you got an A in math, you got an B in literature, you got C in this, you, got you have every single grade on your example, including an F. And you know that, and she said, you know, a lot of other kids, they don't have this experience. Because the very, you know, uh, smart kids, like the top grade kids, they, they're all, they have always. The, the other group of the kids, they have like C and D and F, right? They hardly get an A. So they don't know what a success looks like. The smart kids who got all A's since kindergarten, they also don't know what the failure looks like, but you have it all. And now you know what an F feels like. Just go and fix it. And guess what? I cry even harder because she understood. And I didn't expect her to say this. I expected her to be mad at me and yelled at me. Yeah. <laughs> Although she never did that, by the way. She never did that. Um, but then when she said it, I cried harder and I fixed it and believe it or not, because I didn't have the foundation of, you know, the grammar and whatever it is. 
I didn't pass even the week um, the retest. It took me three times to retake the, the test and move to the next grade. And that point on, I promised myself that I'm going to be a top student. It took me two to three years because I was so far behind, you know, to catch up to be uh, sort of like an average level. When I entered high school, it was the first time that I became a top student. And I graduated high school with a valedictorian, gold medal, and civil medal in math and science and English right before I entered college. And I never come down again. I was like, I'm just going to be top. And guess what? It felt so good to be a top yeah. student. I'm like, oh my God, because I failed before. So I know that the success feels so good. Right. And keep trying and trying in different things. Now it's not just a test because the test is sort of like in a, in a safe environment, right? You are in school, you can retake it. But it's actually true in life. When you found a company, right, um, you might not succeed in the first time, but you learn a lot from it. And then you do it again with a different ideas, with a better idea, with a better discipline, with a better execution plan. And now when I looked at all the entrepreneurs, at least in Silicon Valley, where I live, most of them failed before. The one that we see in the news that maybe they found the first company and became, you know, billionaires and unicorns, those are actually um, not alone. And it doesn't mean they make all the right decisions, right? Um, so those kind of things, um, the, the early um, childhood experience really helped taught me um, to become an entrepreneur um, and now venture capitalist um, and take risks. I feel like both of your parents have such like, different influences but I think both of them have like wisdom in their own ways like the things that they say are so quotable in a sense <laughs> I think they really did spend a yep. lot of time and care you know with you because it looks like you know they really think about the interactions that they have with you and what they what they value and I think it shows in the way you talk about them I was also wondering when you went to university in Thailand did you already know that you wanted to study and work overseas or what happened in between that, you know, influenced you to move out of Thailand? I always dreamed of making an impact. And I knew that, you know, since high school, right? like, I want to save my country. I want to contribute to our region, at least um, Southeast Asia, if not the entire Asia. Deep inside me, since I was young, I knew I could do that. I just didn't know how. Um, so when I was in college um, studying economics, I loved it. You know, I thought, wow, it makes sense to me. I wanted to do more. And I was very lucky that after I graduated, I, you know, um, applied to the University of Michigan and Auburn, uh, a matching program. Um, and along the way, I received a scholarship stipend um, to continue my study. When I was in Michigan, um, it was the first time being there. And it's very cold, by the way, compared to Thailand. And it's just like, oh my God, snowing like eight months a year. Um, you know, something strange happened to me. Like, I have to say, inside myself, 
the very first month I arrived, and at the time I was not even fluent in English, right? And I had to write papers, I had to write my thesis and, and things like that. Being in a graduate school, you have to be able to argue, you know, and discuss a lot of things with your friends, classmates, and so on. And, and Michigan is not a representation of America, right? Every state is different. Um, Michigan is Michigan, California is California, and, and so on. But there in Michigan, I met a lot of great professors who became my mentors and now friends in Michigan. Okay. One of those professors who I really admire is Irving Charles. Currently, he's misleading um, at the Yale, at the Yale um, SOM School um, of Management, MBA School at Yale, and the approach. And he mentored me and was his research assistant. And the first month when I was there, somehow I felt that. This is the country I want. Meaning, I felt in my bones, um, and I didn't have data, I felt that I would be very successful here in the US. I just didn't know what shape and form it was going to be. And I remember I told my best friend, who at the time was at the University of Chicago policy school, that this is a strange feeling. She remembered what I told her, and she was like, yeah. That's interesting. Um, and in fact, uh, last month when I was in, in Bangkok, I reconnected with her and she was like, do you remember where you told me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a spiritual feeling. It's the openness. And, you know, sometimes you were in a bubble, which is a great bubble called college, right? Michigan school. You met, you know, profiling professors um, who mentored you, who gave you the opportunity but and at the same time, I use it as my I call launch pad because I received a scholarship and a little bit of stipend. It's not a lot, but I saved my stipend and used that money to fly myself uh, from Michigan to Washington D.C. every long weekend when I had opportunity and pitch myself at the World Bank. Whoever picked up the call, whoever wanted me with me for coffee. I flew myself in and I said, you should hire me. And here's one. I read your report that you produced at the bank. This is the place where I wanted to work. So I phone call people. Um, and of course, people thought, are you crazy? You flew yourself in and pitched yourself for a job. I don't even have a job opening. <laughs> <laughs> Did they tell you that? One. Did they tell you that over the phone? <laughs> No, later they said that, but at the time they were just like, oh, no, I can't hire you. And then, you know, I, I pitched, I would say, maybe like 49 economists, and of course they said no. <laughs> For a lot of people, they probably would have given up, right? You know, how, how, how are you going to get a job? <laughs> because if I apply, they're not going to pick my application. I didn't go to IT. I didn't have a PhD. Um, it's the level that I go in, which is you know, typically a PhD candidate for, from Ivy League school would also get that sort of job, right? And then, you know, strangely, one economist said yes. He said, oh, sure. Why don't you, why don't we try it out? You come and you work here for three months. Three months only. Okay, that's the overall commitment that he gave me as a deal. How come here? I started working. Um, after one month, I got a full time job. After, after just months, one month. After just one month. Just one month. I got a job. After six months, I got the money. 
because I knew I could do it. And the rest is the history. This is, to me, it's all taking rapes and understand the rejection. It is painful every time I got rejected, don't get me wrong. But realizing that 1%, the 1% who said yes to you, doesn't make the 99% who said no to you matter. That 1% matter, not the 99%. How did you even get the idea of flying yourself out there and pitching yourself? Like, how did that even get into your mind? <laughs> oh my God, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what got into me. So you, you, you didn't know, know and, that you know. somebody else. It wasn't advice. It wasn't in a book. You just thought of it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, why don't I try? I want to be the in person. And, you know, I pull email, pull a call and, you know, spend my, you know, a little bit of savings that I have and take rings to do that. And it's possible that it might not pan out. And you know, by the way, the, the, the funny story is after I got in, right, the HR of the World Bank called, called us, called me and my boss and said that you cannot do this. Meaning like, you can't just like get this person in and, and work for you. So you cannot. So now there was a new policy at the World Bank that nobody can do this again. So I was like the only kid. Oh, you were the only person who was ever hired for three months. <laughs> sort of under, so undercover funny. without the HR properly knowing. <laughs> it is hilarious. But yeah, and you know, I made a lot of friends there. And in fact, in June, beginning of the summer, I just revisited um the World Bank and um, the IFC, um, which is a sister organization of the World Bank, and um some of my colleagues who I work with um were still there. And to your earlier question, after I got in, right, and I met the economist who said no to me, okay, um, and we got to work together, and and now I learned something that the reason they said no, it's not because they don't like you, okay, oh. it's because they might not have budget, but they cannot say they don't have a budget because they don't know you. Why would they tell you that <laughs> the department didn't have money, or <laughs> right, yeah, that's or true. or two. Yeah, or two, they don't have job opening. And it's just a hassle for them to go and argue with the HR why they need to create another headcount. It, it was a slew of things, right? That, you know, but once they met me again, they are happy and willing to work, you know, with me and in some cases mentor me. It, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So don't take rejection as all that. And it is not personal. Right. I think that's a good point. Like you think that you're probably rejected because of your, maybe your experience or profile, but sometimes it's not you. It's there's no budget <laughs> or they're too lazy to tell HR that they want to make a new opening and go through that kind of argument to bring you in. <laughs> yeah. But they can't tell you that, right? You yeah. were just like at the time a student. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you got the job. Was that during after your graduation from your graduate program, or was it during the graduate program? After I got an offer um, when I was still at school. Then after I graduated, then I started working. Oh, okay. So you continued. So it was a good good timing for the three months sort of trial, and then the full time. That's right. That's oh, right. And okay. I stay on. Yeah. And then you stayed there for three years working at. Well, the world bank, and then you moved to Intel. So in a sense, I don't know if this is the best term, but you sort of moved to the private sector from being an economist, you moved to the private sector. 
I know. What, what you know, that's the crazy part that? about me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the crazy part about me. So when I was at the World Bank, because it's so hard to get in, right? And I enjoy being there, learning from the topic part of this from all around the world. At one point, it would come and even talk at the World Bank. And, you know, the first week I was in, I was like, I would never leave this place. This is the best thing ever happened in my life. I'm working hard and so on. Yeah. And there was, you know, um, a pivot moment. I remember um, I travel. So when you work at a World Bank, the bank would send you to different countries depending on, you know, which countries you serve. So I worked for uh, Ministry of Finance and Emerging Markets um, in several regions because my department was sort of like covering um, globally. And um, there was one trip I went to Africa. I went to Tanzania. I worked in Dar es Salaam, which is the capital city of Tanzania. And I remember that, you know, I after the meeting, I went outside by myself. You're not supposed to do that now, looking back. <laughs> That's always saying, right? But at five, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm itchy. I just want to see the real life. I want to see people. Why am I in a five-star hotel in Tanzania? Just show me the real world. So I no, I and I hired a cab. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. Nobody should do that, especially, you know, uh, if you're not sure about like the area. But somehow I had a path to it. Um, and the tap and the taxi kind of took me around. I said, "Tell me where you know how people live. Um, take me to the museum. Take me to the market where people buy food and so on." And at five, I still remember the light went on. There was no electricity. Uh, when you were in a hotel, you didn't know because there was a, an electric um, electricity generator at each hotel, right? But when you went out. People started lighting candles when the sun set. And at the same time, when they got had electricity, they came out lighting the candle and they used pencil phone. At the time, it was called feature phone, not even smartphone, phone with buttons. Okay. Imagine lighting candles and with smart and, and with feature phone, sending money, talking to people, sending payments to, you know, their relatives and others in different provinces. They already used mobile payment before PayPal became famous, before the smartphone, the first smartphone was launched by people. And for some reason, that really imprinted in my mind. It's like, wow, the technology is going to be big. In the U.S., we didn't even use mobile payment at that point. But these people, they use it regularly, even though they don't have electricity, and they use like four-digit income for payment. And so I became interested in technology and how it would impact lives, uh, especially in emerging markets. So it's been a thesis in my mind, and I started doing more research. I started to understand more about what it means and so on. So... As you saw, you know, in my profile, after three years at the World Bank, I quit. I quit the best job. <laughs> I was like, I'm done. I'm moving myself to Silicon Valley. I'm going to come to Penn. I'm just going to learn and, you know, figure out how to get an impact using technology. Because I saw what I call it at the um, And along the way, I was so lucky. 
So um, I got an MBA and was late before um, joining Intel as a part of basically they have an executive management program that the CEO at the time um, created to recruit 15 MBA students from target attended schools. I was one of the 15 um, the management leadership program. So, and that kind of like started me on the same path. So you took the MBA at Berkeley before um, getting recruited by Intel? Yes, that's correct. Oh, okay. And then how did you decide that Intel was the company you wanted to join after your MBA? That's a great question. So the year that I graduated, um, 2010, it was during the recruitment, number one. So the job was very hard to find. Number two, there was a lot of tech jobs that, you know, still recruit. Google, Facebook, it was quite popular at that time, even Singa, a gaming company. But for for MBA students, a lot of them actually would go do investment banking or management consulting in my generation, right? That those were popular. So during the recession, I managed to get a few offers, including management consulting offers and also pay offers. And I realized that, you know, what I really, really need is the management experience the real operations experience because I came from the World Bank background, right? So instead of doing management consulting, it is better for me to really grow up my fleet. And especially the management um, leadership program that Intel created at the time, it was one of the best programs. So I would get exposed to senior level management, senior level executive at the time, and the growth was still alive. Um, volatility the CEO was still alive. And they would come and talk with my, a, a small group of us, you know, and train us. They put a lot of resources and capital to, to train us. We have executive coaches. We get to try different roles from product marketing to sales to strategy, you name it. So to me, that diversity of the role really drew me to Intel, besides the fact that Intel, to me, is um, the kind of Silicon Valley, that's why we call Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, which, um, you know, the leader is talking. So that's to me an easy choice, um, to go into tech. But on the other hand, I also know even if I decided to join, um, other companies like Google or Facebook or some other choices, I also think that the outcome might, might not be that much different in the sense that I would still look into the company and figure out where I can create an impact or bring the product to the emerging market. Um, it might be different shape and form. It might not be what I did at Intel, which I, you know, helped pioneer the low-cost Android tablet. It might, it might not be hardware, but it could be a software form if it's Google, right? Or application if it's at Facebook. So, it depends on the flavor um, that I'm going to work on. But ultimately, because I already have a goal in mind in terms of what I really like to do as a big picture, which is impact at the global scale, I, I would get to. So it's sort of marrying what you wanted to do, which is impact at a global scale, maybe with a special focus on emerging markets and tying that with you know whatever the company wants to do, right? Correct. 
And what was it like to pioneer the first low-cost template? Was it hard to make it happen? Like, what was the most difficult part of the the launch? (laughs) It it was very, very hard because, you know, I was junior. (laughs) I was, you know, inside a company for two years. And in a big company, you have to be able to convince the senior management why it's a great idea. So there were a lot of things into it. So one, you have to believe that the product can be created. And the, the, you know, the early kind of like concept, um, it was at the time, Steve Jobs just launched the prototype. And if you remember, it was very expensive. I came from Thailand um, and worked at the World Bank in emerging markets. I told people that, you know, a lot of populations in the world came out of it. So that's number one. Number two, I think. But but because the product was launched, so I knew that it can be done. I mean, technically, technology, right? So I talked with some of the engineers um, who I developed relationships with inside the company in the first two years, like whether or not it can be done at a low scale. And engineer was like, look, and, and by the way, this is the funny part. Most engineers that I talked to about themselves, they said, whatever you want to create, whatever you want to make, it can be done. Oh, Just tell me which one. No, and, and I was surprised to hear this. It was like, are you serious? Like, <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> and different people, right, who, who might not know each other. And they gave me the same answer. Like, what? you know, the engineer would say, yes, it can be done. Um, the question is, how are we going to take a certain price point? Because, you know, I want it to be low cost. And at the same time, this is how the market works. At the same time, Google launched the first Android, which was great, disrupting Microsoft at the time. Microsoft OS or operating system um, was not free. So Google wanted to get the market share, so they came in the world. So you put different pieces together in the ecosystem, the hardware, the software operating system, and you already have existing partners. Who would make you know um, the the clamshell? Who would make um, the, the product? And engineers and that it can be done. So the rest is about why this is a good idea, why there's a market for it, and how to get the executives inside the company to basically get approval so that we get a product made. And this is how the management leadership rotation, the develop program I went in um, in the first two years was super helpful because in the first two years, and I learned that developing political, I call political leadership or network with the senior management is really key. Because once you have a new initiative, you want to do something really hard, you know who to go to. You show the data, you have the experience and background. In my case, we've got the same as anybody else that came from the World Bank and income background. And putting this together to the people who supported you. So in two years, you know who likes you, who supported with you, who has the power to make a decision and make it happen. And it starts small, right? And just that, you know, and you know, spread out, you, you know, share your data with a lot of people and that's how you kind of get it. I think something that I wanted to point out is what you said about the engineers. And it's 
that he said, you know, anything can be done. You just have to tell me what it is. Is that like an Intel mindset, a Silicon Valley mindset or an engineer mindset? Or is it something else? <laughs> that's actually, that's actually funny. It's actually in most cases. Oh, okay. it's, if you have an idea and if you aren't able, it, it can be done. That's why the innovation happens. That's why the autonomous driving happens. Because they believe it can happen. Mm. And then they figure it out. So, you know, sometimes it's from the need base. Sometimes it's from imagination. Sometimes it's from the market gap or opportunity. So it's almost like a mantra here that, okay, I need this to happen. We'll figure it out. And do you sort of take that with you throughout your career too? The same mindset? Yes. So, you know, we're going to have to figure it out besides the fact that you, you have to dream and dream big. Mm-hmm. But you, but sometimes there's a lot of things you've got to figure out. But what I've learned that is even more important than that is, yes, the product can be created. But a step further is, can you actually scale it? Can you create an adoption? Is there a market for it? Because even if you can build the most beautiful products in the world, but nobody wants to consume it, so what's the point? You're not going to have a business. And to me, it is the product side, the technology side, but also the business side, right? Understanding the customer on what they want. And that's when the the magic happens. And you left Intel after seven years. How did you know when it was time to go? And why did you leave? Yeah. Yeah. So seven years is, you know, at Intel, you keep the first sabbatical. Intel, they keep you on sabbatical uh, after every seven years if you stay. So to me, it's sort of like a mark as well. Like in my mind, like, oh, okay, I'm getting my first sabbatical in quite a while. And at the same time, the product, um, the tablet, that, you know, um, I I was a part of, you know, it's kind of like coming from like inc- almost like incubation and, you know, product and scale selling, you know, in different countries throughout the world. So I sort of like at the end of the cycle, oh, right? Okay. So I see from the start to finish within those seven years. And I was ready to take a bigger challenge. That's how, you know, I decided that I would be open-minded and at the same time, you know, when you are at some place um, for that long, you usually get called <laughs> if you do well. <laughs> yeah. So I, I got some call from, if I got some call from people, you know, many times, you know, it's that say, okay, are you interested in joining us, doing this and that? And that's how I decided to uh, move on because uh, I was really and then since you were ready to move on and you were open-minded, did you have an end goal in mind or did you have an idea for what you wanted or were you really open-minded um, enough to, uh, to sort of entertain different things? I knew that I wanted to be in tech. Um, so I'm not going to switch to, you know, any other sectors like retail and whatnot. That definitely was, was not for me. And I had in my mind that I was so curious about startups. I was so curious about venture capital. At the time, I didn't know. I, I heard about it, but I didn't really know about it, right? On how it works, what makes sense, what didn't make sense, and so on. And being in the Bay Area, you have to hear all kinds of these stories, right? Because you were so close. 
So um, when I got a call, you know, um, being charged for Sastry, who at the time was the dean of computer science and engineering, and say, hey, you know, um, I, I I do Skydive UC, which is a venture capital fund um, under UC Berkeley. It's an incubation program. Why don't you come to the Mentor a lot of entrepreneurs, founders, and help scale the program. And and so on. I'm like, wow, I'm going to get to do a startup. I'm going to get to switch sides. Well, some, somehow coming back to the capital side, because when I was at the World Bank, I was on the capital side. But this yeah. is a different kind of capital, right? It's yeah. venture capital. Right. <laughs> and most importantly, I couldn't say no to the deed. The dean call. I mean, the dean of Berkeley. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> I'm coming. And when you joined, did you know that this would be like a career for you? When did you realize that you wanted to be in venture capital? I didn't know immediately. And at the same time, um, I have to talk about the geographical area living in the Bay Area. So Intel, it was in South Bay, right? And Berkeley is we call East Bay, but it's closer to San Francisco. Okay. So um, moving, moving. So um, leaving Intel and coming to Berkeley, sort of like coming back. I actually moved houses too, right? Because commute in this act, <laughs> you don't want to spend three hours in the car. Um, anyway, so coming. So I took a break. So I basically moved houses, relocate in the East Bay, you know where I live right now, and start a new journey. I didn't know uh, whether this is going to be it, okay? but I tried and I loved it. Number one, I got to make a broader impact because I am not tied to one specific company. Yeah. Now, my advice, the things that I've learned in my career, um, the founders can take it. So when I do it in you know, many scales, like at least 40 companies a year, and the industry is very small. So once you do well, People have heard about your name. So later on, I was invited to join other innovation programs as well, including the Alchemist or UCSF Health Hub, which is basically health focus on incubation program under UCSF. So that's how you know I got to see more entrepreneurs spending into different sectors until I realized that one, women are underfunded. Two, emerging market founders like us are not represented enough. So I started to see the gap of venture capital. So, and while, you know, doing deals and um, investing and whatnot, uh, it was a great experience. And I realized, okay, I'm ready to do the fund. It has to be the fund that also benefits Emerging market only. It's always the same in my career. It has to be global impact. You cannot exclude women. You cannot exclude minorities. And you cannot exclude people from emerging markets. And then that was that the reason you ended up becoming a founding partner at Mr. Pink? Or did you have other opportunities at the same time before um, realizing that you wanted to join Mr. Pink? I was wondering how that came to be. Yeah. So um, excited. Um, I'm, I'm still excited today. Um, it's just that I kind of stepped back a little bit in terms of my level of engagement, and then I launched a fund. And believe it or not, the first fund um, that I was trying to raise, I couldn't raise. 
I could not. I was too early in the market. And I was targeting Southeast Asia at the time that was like five, six years ago. Um, there, there were a lot of reasons. And then doing the race, COVID hit. Yeah. So, you know, I had to put a pause on it and pivot the fund. And because of COVID, we work from home and so on. Latin America is more, you know, it's, it's, it's um, a little bit closer um, to where I am. And the market opportunity is booming. Also happened to be that um, one of my classmates at Berkeley um, graduating the same year as me, he, you know, went on and found a, um, a company and exited the company successfully. And he said, okay, I'm done doing that. I want to be a VC. And throughout the journey, um, being, you know, um, doing deals, incubation, being on the board, I was also invited to join um, Intel Alumni uh, Board after I left Intel. And, you know, so so it's kind of like wearing multiple hats. So that's how, then, and the journey that comes together, I decided that, okay, why don't we kind of pivot it instead of, you know, we, we couldn't buy, a, you know, COVID, I can't go to Asia. Why don't we just launch a fund in Latin America, where my friend, my um, co-founder, um, the GP of the fund, um, lives in Argentina. And before that, we were like, are we going to be able to do this? Because, you know, we can't buy, we're going to have to raise, you know, money through soon and, and so on. That was um, 2008 and 2019. Like, it was unimaginable. So, you know, it turns out, you raise hundred percent of capital. Wow! Over Zoom. Over Zoom. Never met an LP influencer during the fundraising. Of course, we know we do some of them. And here is how what I worked. So before that, I couldn't raise. And when COVID hit, we were in some sort of crisis. People invest. And from for me, what I learned is behavioral economics. Before COVID hit, you know the reason that people gave me was that, oh, you know, the economy has been doing so well since like 2012 and whatever it is. We don't we, we feel that the recession is coming. We just don't know when. So we want to make sure we have cash on hand instead of doing investment in a new asset class, the VC asset class, I'd rather save, you know, my capital with me to be careful for the world because they were scared. They thought the crisis was coming. And then when the COVID hit, the crisis actually happened. People were hoarding the toilet paper. I know it's funny. Now it's sounds funny, but it was, you know, you remember. Yes. <laughs> Only like I also three years, a lot three and a half years. Paper. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's only three, three and a half years ago, four years now. Yeah, four, yeah. It, it's crazy. And people were like, oh, actually, even with COVID, it's not that bad. I can handle this. I can handle the capital. I still have cash to deploy. And I need to invest to generate returns. I raise money. And <laughs> now I look back, this is human psychology. You fear something, you don't do it. And when it happens, it's like, oh, there's nothing to 
How did it feel to finally raise a fund after, you know, trying to raise for Southeast Asia and, you know, sort of failing in that sense? How did it feel? Um, especially, you know, when you're raising for Southeast Asia, at least you could say you're Southeast Asian while well, you're, you're, GP was from Latin America, but I, I I can imagine it was also maybe a bit uncertain for you too. Like, how can I raise for a Latin fund? I'm not from Latin America. <laughs> That's another variable that kind of like, okay, this surprised me, right? Went like beyond, you know, human psychology and whatnot. I think that I was too early for the market. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm t- talking mainly at five Five years ago and today, completely different. Yeah. You know, the, it's, so many things that happened, right? And, you know, granted, um, I focused on specific groups of people, I mean, you know, who may not have heard of this, never heard of this asset class. There was a lot of education to be done because it's so new. So that is the main factor. So if I, you know, I look back, another thing is beyond, you know, the incubation program, besides uh, working guiding, Besides um, Let and Fun, I was also at a fund based in Palo Alto, traditional, traditional funds that invest in public including Lyft, Airbnb, you know, SpaceX, and so on. So I served as a partner there as well. Sorry, I forgot to mention earlier. So all of these experiences kind of come together that really helped me see the entire life cycle of venture capital funds from investing to exit the company because usually a fund would have a 10 year lifetime. Yeah. I passed through three funds uh, as a fund and investing, you know, being an IC um, investment committee and so on. And right now, I really believe that it's the right time for Asia to really get involved in technology investment with an impact plan. Um, it also happened to be that in the last, um, in the past three years, I was invited to join Berkeley Plan School of Business as a professional faculty. So I'm teaching a venture capital class to MBA students. So um, President Biden won the presidency um, three years ago, as you know, and Professor Janet Yellen became the first woman in history to hold surgery safety job. And she also recruited some professors um, at Berkeley to join the team. And I got a call from the professors who, who, who joined with the team that they need someone like me um, who has launched, you know, the fund um, in emerging markets and very multiple paths and come and impact investing. So and doing and, and doing the teaching is a part of the curriculum that 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 I taught. The students need to have the opportunity to make investments. So it's not just a theory and lecture. They have to go to our team. So it's a teaching in training. So that's sort of like another thing that I get to not only train the students, but also invest in emerging markets because some of the deals that uh, we invested in um, are in Africa. Um, and of course, the US and some other countries. Well, Jeep, I didn't want to ask you this earlier on already, but I think you even layered over it. 
as well. It seems like you're doing so many things for work. I'm not sure if you consider all of it work, but how do you manage all of that? Do you do anything for fun? What do you like to do outside of all of those things to help you stay safe? <laughs> I don't. Well, and, and I have a kid, right? So, um, yes, I I really enjoy what I do. So um, that to me is not really you know work. And we we shared earlier, right? Like I traveled for three months this summer. It's the longest travel. I went to four countries, seven different cities in three months, and I just came home two days ago. And doing I so all workation, I met startup companies, I met potential investors who wanted to invest in my next fund if I launch a fund, and and things like that, right? And it became a part of who I am. So it's not, it's kind of work, but also not work. But if I want to take myself outside of all this, I go to Napa, which is one hour away from my house. I would go ride a bike one day during the weekend and, you know, come back and recharge, <laughs> eat good food, talk to you. <laughs> this is a relaxing time. <laughs> it's incredible that even... Just two days after your vacation, you're still here speaking with me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, I might sound a little jet lag and incoherent. So yeah, that's totally. <laughs> I don't think you sound jet lagged and incoherent. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, what's your favorite food to eat when you're trying to relax or you want to put yourself in a better mood? Since you mentioned food earlier. Joking on that up, it's Thai food. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a specific no, dish? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I think that I really go for whatever best in that restaurant. So I have a few favorite restaurants here. I like katsu, just really stir fry, pink noodles, you know, um, big fat noodles. I, it's one of my favorites. Sometimes I like spicy food. Um, like Tom Yang Fung, right? You know, for yeah. sweet and sour with shrimp and mushrooms in there um, and make it extra spicy. So I would tell the Thai restaurant, you're like, hey, I'm Thai. So make it real Thai. Okay? <laughs> and that kind of light me up. <laughs> and I think to close, I want to ask you one question. I ask everybody that comes onto the podcast and that is outside of work. So strictly outside of work what's one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life and you know the timeline is anything it could be two years three years ten years or even you know five months so whatever you think of i wanted to spend quality time mindful time being present with my daughter and my and i want to live the moment it sounds simple but I want to do that when I have the chance, even one day. It's actually very hard because sometimes you are together, but your mind is thinking about something else. And sometimes you are on the phone all the time, chasing details. And, you know, to me, I just, I don't need a lot of time, but maybe five, ten minutes a day that all of us are conversing, uh, being mindful together. And I want to do this every day in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years. Well, I'm sure you'll get to do it. And, you know, you have this podcast to keep us all accountable. <laughs> all right. You keep track on me. I like that. <laughs> but, yeah. Thank you so much, Chief, for making the time after, you know, your 
your vocation and sharing so much with us. I think I really enjoyed all of the personal experiences you shared and I learned a lot myself and I'm sure a lot of other people will. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.